Welcome to the Insomnia Coach Podcast. My name is Martin Reed. I believe that nobody needs to live with chronic insomnia and that cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, CBTI techniques, can help you enjoy better sleep for the rest of your life. Nick Wignall is a clinical psychologist who specializes in cognitive behavioral therapy for anxiety disorders and insomnia. He's also a writer interested in how we can use the tools and insights of behavioral science to better achieve our personal growth and development goals. In this episode, we talk about insomnia as an anxiety disorder rather than as a sleep disorder the pros and cons of acceptance and commitment therapy for insomnia, why sleep hygiene is rarely helpful, and why CBTI is typically the best option for people with chronic insomnia. A full transcript of this podcast and an accompanying video can be found at insomniacoach.com forward slash podcast. All right, so thanks for being on with us today, Nick. Sure. Thanks for having me. So just to get the ball rolling then. So tell us how you got interested in the field of sleep and insomnia in particular. Mm -hmm. So I didn't study it at all in in grad school, um, which is strange. (laughs) Uh, Didn't come up at all. But then right as I was starting my first postdoc, I was asked to do a review of a a book um, by a a couple psychologists named um, Colleen Carney and Rachel Manburn, who are um, big in the in the CBTI world, and I just thought it was I didn't know anything about sleep, but I was asked to do this review, so I thought sure, and I, I reviewed their um, this book, and I was just blown away by this whole world of CBTI, mm-hmm. cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. I mean, I, I was a trained cognitive behavioral therapist, but I I'd, I'd never heard of CBTI before, yeah. and everything I read was just like wow, like this makes so much sense. It was almost too good to be true. Um, <laughs> it, it all made a ton of sense. So then I just started, you know, when I started, um, when I started working, I kind of took on some insomnia clients and thought, well, hey, let's, uh, does this actually work? Like, let's, let's see. And so that was kind of the start. And then I, you know, started going to conferences and reading more and taking on more insomnia clients. And of course, I learned a lot more there, but it was that initial thing of, of reading that book, um, yeah. which kind of did it for me. So, so when you decided to just try this out in the real world, how, how, how did it work? Was it like straight away you were just thinking, wow, this is get, this really is getting results straight away. Or was it more a case of trial and error as you were actually implementing it in the real world? So I think I lucked out in that my first couple cases of insomnia were pretty, they weren't super severe and they were pretty straightforward. They didn't have a lot of complicating factors along with them. And so they went, you know, like (laughs) frankly, just a pretty good dose of sleep restriction and some stimulus control Mm -hmm. really just did the trick um, for these people. And they got um, a lot of benefit really quickly. Um, But then, you know, as I went on, I started getting more complex clients and with some kind of stickier situations, um, which, which I learned a ton from and eventually were, successful with but it wasn't always you know it did take some time with some of those more complicated ones yeah and so just going back to what you were saying earlier that your your initial training in your area of interest was cbt like cognitive behavioral therapy mm-hmm. um what's the difference between just regular plain vanilla cbt and cbti if if someone has insomnia 
Mm-hmm. And ultimately, they want to find someone who's familiar with CBTI. Um, yeah. What if they just find someone who is unfamiliar with CBTI, but they are a CBT therapist? So mm-hmm. I'm just really just trying to grasp what, what the difference is, because there's so many acronyms in this industry, right? Yeah, so right. what does the addition of that I onto the end of CBT actually mean? I think what it means is you, you understand how sleep works. Like just even on a physiological and psychological level, like you understand how sleep works in the body. Um, and, and really what that comes down to, I think, is basically two points, which is these two concepts called um, sleep drive and arousal. Mm-hmm. The, the fundamental thing with sleep drive is basically the longer you're awake, the more sleepy you're going to get. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of counterintuitively, you can harness that phenomena um, and use it to your advantage with people who aren't sleeping well, mm-hmm. right? Um, so if you understand that, which I think a lot of just vanilla CBT providers just don't, were never taught anything about sleep and don't really understand that. And then also the importance of arousal, which typically takes the form of sleep anxiety or sleep effort and how, how that can very quickly inhibit, um, or disrupt normal levels of sleepiness. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, but once you really understand that those are the big two drivers of difficulty sleeping. I, I really think everything kind of falls into place after that. So that, to me, that's the big difference. That's, that's brilliant. You know, to, to go on to this whole thing about the arousal, you know, um, I've, I've heard you suggest that perhaps insomnia shouldn't necessarily be considered a sleep disorder. Perhaps it should be categorized or more appropriately categorized as an anxiety disorder. Um, I've heard you say that. Um, I don't know, maybe you want to deny it or maybe you want to accept <laughs> it. Um, but can you just tell tell me a bit more about that? Because I, th- I think it's really interesting. Yeah, sure. No, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll own that one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I mean, I think in general, it's understandably a lot of our diagnoses are, are descriptive in nature. For a long time, we didn't understand the underlying mechanism behind a lot of common psychopathology. And so the best we could do was describe it in terms of it, what it looks like. Like think depression, you know, with low mood, low energy, hypersomnia, um, but in general, I think the better way to classify diagnoses is functionally. Like what's the mechanism kind of driving it underneath? Um, and when it comes to, yes, insomnia looks a lot like a, <laughs> you might call it a sleep disorder based on a descriptive criteria because it involves sleep. But the fundamental mechanism, the thing that leads people into chronic insomnia is um, basically hyperarousal, and in, which almost always takes the form of some kind of anxiety. So something happens to someone, they start a new job that's really stressful, the death of a loved one and a lot of grief, something happens and their sleep very understandably gets disrupted. They don't sleep as well. They have acute insomnia, which is actually a pretty normal thing. Everyone experiences bouts of insomnia from time to time. But almost always, if you look carefully, people who develop long-term insomnia, they become afraid of having more insomnia. Mm. Which is a very understandable thing. If you if you only sleep for you know a handful of hours per night for a few nights in a row, mm-hmm. you are going to feel pretty miserable. Like yeah. it's it's rough. Insomnia is rough. Um, but the problem is if you start worrying about it and you start researching why you're having insomnia and trying you know 101 different sleep hygiene techniques and and ruminating and worrying about your sleep, you're you're increasing your level of arousal. Mm-hmm. Right. You're you're upshifting mentally into a higher gear of activity, which unfortunately is the very opposite of the thing you need in order to fall asleep. Uh, you need to be relaxed in order to end up falling asleep. 
But if you're constantly upshifting into arousal because you're worried about not sleeping, well, you're not going to sleep very well. Yeah. Um, so that's why I say uh, insomnia is really more of an anxiety disorder because the fundamental mechanics of how insomnia develops and actually how you get rid of it, I think, are much closer to what you see in typical anxiety disorders than, um, than in what you see in other sleep disorders, mm-hmm. yeah. which are more physiological and not psychological in nature. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say, you know, because if, if someone has insomnia, they, they can sleep, but it's kind of this high level of arousal that's making sleep more difficult, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in other sleep disorders that we see, it's more physiological, like you say, you know, if it's sleep apnea, for example, that's like a physical problem. Right. Um, but with insomnia, it's not really this physical problem with the sleep. It's kind of this mental, this mental issue, you know, uh, whether it's cognitive or whether it's behavioral. Mm-hmm. It, but I think that's good that you don't, we don't want to, we don't want to um, stigmatize people and, mm-hmm. and imply that, you know, it's all in your head or yeah. there's nothing wrong with you because it's not physiological. Um, but I think the, the way that I usually frame it to my clients is it's about habits, mm-hmm. right? And you can develop through no fault of your own and and often very counterintuitively, you can develop habits that seem like exactly the right thing to do, Mm -hmm. but actually are totally counterproductive Mm -hmm. and just make your sleep worse. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely, Uh, I I like the word habits a lot Mm -hmm. because it implies both um, agency, like you have control over, you can become aware of it, but it's not something you're doing intentionally to Mm -hmm. yourself. Yeah, I, I, do, I like that because also I think most of us can recognize that it takes time to develop habits too. Mm-hmm. And so just as it took time for insomnia to become more entrenched and become a chronic problem, it's going to take time for you to implement the techniques, the changes in the thought processes, the behavioral changes. It's going to take time for you to develop those skills or those habits to kind of reverse the process. Exactly. So that's, that is a great word to use. I like that. <laughs> so what is it about CBTI that you think is just so effective for addressing this, this sleep-related anxiety? Um, I, well, I think that the two active ingredients in CBTI in some form or another come down to what traditionally has been called sleep restriction, but more people are moving away towards calling it sleep compression or time in bed restriction, which mm-hmm. is, doesn't roll off the tongue quite as well. Mm-hmm. But is a little more accurate. You're not technically restricting someone's amount of sleep. You're restricting how much time they spend in bed. Um, and then the other one is stimulus control, which, which basically is a fancy term for not, not helping people not engage with the stimuli that keeps them awake and aroused. So it could be a worry or it could be too much noise in their bedroom or whatever. Um, but those two things, because they address the two fundamental variables in sleep, which are sleep drive, Mm-hmm. and um, arousal. Um, so I think it, it's kind of the, the, the one-two punch of hitting both of those. You, you, by compressing people's sleep, by having people not spend as much time in bed, you're increasing their sleep drive. So they're more likely to be sleepy when they finally do get into bed and they're more likely to sleep deeply and get quality sleep throughout. Um, and then you're also, you're, you're preventing them from in, basically from engaging in worry or things that would arouse them and inhibit their sleep drive. Mm-hmm. So in other words, if you're laying in bed and you can't, you know, you're worried about not being able to fall asleep, instead of laying in bed worrying, you get out of bed and go watch a TV show, which mm-hmm. will keep your mind off of worry and allow your body's natural sleep drive to kind of build back up again and mm-hmm. help you fall asleep. Yeah. Um, so I think those, those are kind of the two, the two big ones. Mm-hmm. Well, what are your thoughts on this? Um, like when I'm working with clients, 
some people would just tell me right off the bat, the idea of me allotting less time for sleep or the idea of getting out of bed when I can't sleep, that gives me more anxiety than the idea that I won't sleep. So I'm sure you've experienced that yourself because I think it's quite a common obstacle or a barrier that we face. Um, how, How do you approach that? Yeah. So with that in particular, with the getting out of bed thing, um, I, for the most part, um, try and encourage experimentation. Mm -hmm. So what I'll tell people is that the standard approach is if you can't fall asleep, get out of bed, um, do something relaxing until you're sleepy again and then get back in bed. And generally, if people are okay with that, we can try that. Even if they're a little bit nervous, they're usually willing to give it a go um, for a few times. And that often works. But if someone is really resistant to it and doesn't even want to experiment with doing it in little ways. I take kind of a, in a sense, like a harm reduction approach and say, okay, in general, it would probably be better to get out of bed if you're not sleepy, right? That's kind of a basic staple of, of CBTI, but it's probably better that you listen to an audiobook in bed than lay in bed worrying about not sleeping, right? Mm-hmm. Or you read on your Kindle a little bit. Um, and so I'll go, you know, sort of a general principle with insomnia is stop trying so hard <laughs> just across the board, right? You yeah. can't worry your way into sleeping better. Um, and, and as a therapist, I can't, being too rigid with my um, recommendations almost always backfires because it encourages more rigidity of thinking and behaving in my clients. Mm-hmm. So I, I really try and be mindful of being flexible in my recommendations and approaches and always trying to, if something's really not working for someone to try to kind of roll with it and come up with a more flexible solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on uh, acceptance and commitment techniques? You know, this ACT for insomnia, which is I think very similar to CBTI apart from this idea about getting in and out of bed. Um, mm-hmm. Like, whereas the ACT techniques suggest that you stay in bed and kind of accept your worries, you know, recognize that their thoughts, um, just welcome them in, trying not to engage with them. And that is the key to improving your sleep. Yeah. Whereas with CBTI, obviously, as you just described, it's kind of the opposite. They're saying as soon as you're kind of ruminating and you feel those worries, that's when you get out of bed. So what, what are your thoughts on the differences here? And are you familiar with ACT? Have you ever tried yeah. it? Yeah. And actually, I so I, I'm fascinated by it. Mm-hmm. And, and I think ultimately the whatever works mm. it, there's a there's a commonality among things that are going to work and there are probably things in ACT that traditional CBTI could incorporate and get would be really helpful mm-hmm. and probably vice versa to some extent um so I, I definitely think it's good that ACT for insomnia is becoming more of a thing and people are thinking more about it um because in my experience there there are some clients for whom that's a better strategy, especially people who are really um, like more on the rigid side. They're very hardworking. They're very intense. They're a lot of times the the structure of CBTI just feeds into that mm. and ends up being a net negative. Um, so I, I really try and take it on a case by case basis. And there are certain people where I, I take a much more um, what would look like uh, acceptance and commitment therapy style approach. Um, but I think it, it really just depends on the particular person. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in general, m- my approach is if it's pretty severe, I think at first it helps to take the CBTI mm-hmm. route, um, get some of those habits and some of those schedules under control and get, get, thing, get the intensity down a little bit. And then I think the higher level skill 
really is sort of along the lines of ACT, which is just because you have an anxious thought doesn't mean you have to do anything about it. Certainly mm-hmm. not think more about it and worry on it, but maybe you don't even have to do it, like get out of bed or do anything and just let yourself be, you know, accept those worries as worries and not engage with them. Mm-hmm. I think in some ways, I think that's the ideal, but that's a high level skill. That's yeah. a pretty, uh, I, I'm all for going for that long term, mm-hmm. but I don't think a lot of people are ready for that right off the bat. Yeah, you know, you just took the words out of my mouth. I was going to say this, it, it sounds way more skills based. You know, it's a high level skill being able to not fear these thoughts, you know, to mm-hmm. kind of learn to welcome them in almost like relaxation. You know, relaxation is a skill in itself. Right. A lot of people who have never tried, let's say, just say meditation, for example, mm-hmm. they might just try it and then I don't feel relaxed and then never go back. Like right. failing to recognize it's a skill that takes a lot of practice. Sure. And I think if you've got a high level of anxiety about sleep, um, trying to learn right off the bat as like your first kind of strategy to mm-hmm. just accept these thoughts, even just be hearing that that's what you're being told to do, I think it's a very difficult obstacle. Um, and I would agree with you, correct me if I'm wrong, but I interpreted what you said as the idea of just getting out of bed is probably just a quicker way, you know, to start making progress um, compared to something like ACT, which does require, you know, a higher level of a higher level of skill and a high level of practice. Yeah, I think for most people, it's the more gradual approach, and it allows them to to really do the thing that I think all successful in treatment for insomnia is based off of, which is building up people's confidence that they can sleep on their own, that their body knows how to sleep and that they don't have to do anything about it and that they will sleep. Absolutely, <laughs> I think yeah. that's, that's the key. And so I think if you can boost that confidence by, you know, 50% by doing some basic sleep restriction and stimulus control and get them feeling less anxious about their sleep, then maybe at some point they're ready to do that kind of higher level stuff. Yeah. You know, I'm seeing that, uh, in the forum on my website, I have people that have, that I've worked with or that have just tried CBTI techniques themselves. They've seen improvements in their sleep, but they've still kind of got these holdout nights, you know, those one or two nights a week where they're still having to implement stimulus control and they're getting frustrated by the idea that they still have to get out of bed. And then they've discovered ACT, you know, um, for example, through the sleep book. um, And they've they've read that and now they're trying that and they're finding it really helpful. After going through a course of CBTI is kind of like the next level, you know, like CBTI is the bachelor's degree maybe and then (laughs) ACT is like the master's, you know. So they kind of graduate onto that and they seem to be doing well. Um, but I, I think that you do kind of need that basis of CBTI really, um, just to kind of start making some progress and just start thinking about sleep a little bit differently before just diving straight into ACT. That's my personal opinion on it. Um, that's been my clinical experience too. Yeah. Yeah. So talking, let's stick with anxiety because I think it is such an important, has such an important role to play in Mm -hmm. insomnia. So when you're working with clients that tell you that they're anxious, how do you, Mm identify what the actual real thought is that's creating that anxiety and then work on addressing it? Well, similar to you, um, I usually start with kind of a Socratic questioning and Mm -hmm. and getting them to do a little um, metacognition, thinking about their thinking. And I'll encourage them to, um, you know, keep kind of a little journal or a thought record or something around bedtime to to try and get practice in noticing what are the thoughts that are going through my mind? What are those automatic thoughts that are happening um, in and around sleep? Because as you're alluding to, it's probably those thoughts that are producing anxiety, not sleep itself. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's for a certain 
percentage of people, that's pretty productive. And we can get sort of a record of what those typical thoughts are. And then we can start to address those in different ways, whether it's kind of traditional cognitive therapy and disputing distortions and all that kind of stuff or, Mm -hmm. or more kind of ACT approaches. Um, But there are a certain, there's a percentage of people who just don't do real well with that strictly cognitive approach. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I found there that you can, a lot of times you you can look at it more behaviorally and say, okay, what are the environmental cues that are producing the anxiety? And really what that means is what are the environmental cues that are producing the thoughts that are then producing the anxiety? But if you can, if you can manipulate those environmental cues, either by changing the environment itself or by changing people's state kind of emotionally and physically that they're in when they go into that environment, um, often you can, get around the need to get into the thoughts in particular. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of high level, but it, it might be the kind of thing where someone, like I had a client recently who um, like the, the bathroom at night was the situation. That's when they started getting anxious before sleep, like when they went to brush their teeth and um, wash their face and stuff like that. Um, and so what we, what we did for a while is we, we switched up where they did all their evening routine stuff. So they, they, they had them brush their teeth in the, in the kitchen, uh, right. And they would wash their face in the kitchen. So they, they just avoided the bathroom altogether. Mm. And what that kind of amazingly, they found that when they went into bed, they, their level of arousal was just significantly lower than it had been because they weren't getting those kind of classically conditioned arousal responses, Mm. um, to that particular situation. Um, wow, that's that's really interesting, you know, because I, I think it's almost connected in a way to people that find they can sleep fine on the couch, but then mm-hmm. they struggle as soon as they go into their own bed. And right. so it's not really constructive for us to say, well, okay, carry on sleeping on the couch unless that's their long term goal. But right. when it's something like what you said, well, just brush your teeth in the kitchen, for example, you're kind of breaking that conditioned arousal, but in a in a constructive way. And then what it also does, I think, importantly, is it. A, you know, they get a few nights or even a couple of weeks of that um, under their belt, so to speak. Then they can go back to doing their regular routine and they have more confidence that mm. they can get to sleep. Yeah. I think that's so key that that confidence then allows them to override some of that anxiety that comes up with, you know, their, the bathroom or whatever it is. Mm. Um, the other thing I'm really big on is really getting pretty rigorous with people about, um, the, the time, basically the, the hour or two before bedtime, it's called different people call it the buffer zone or the sleep runway or different things. But a lot of people are nominally good about not doing anything super stressful or anxiety producing before bed. But when you really analyze it, they're still doing a lot of what Colin Carney would call um, striving activity. So really goal oriented, they're, they're checking emails or they're uh, doing chores around the house or they're, they're getting ready for the next day. And all these things for someone with insomnia, even, you know, a moderate amount of, again, kind of goal oriented thinking and behavior is enough to kick you up into a high level of arousal to where you, you don't feel the, the, your sleepiness gets overridden. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they, then they get to bedtime and they, they start worrying that they're not sleepy and that they're not going to sleep. And then, of course, they, they're not sleepy and they don't sleep as well. Yeah, I think it's, I like to call it the buffer zone. Um, I think it it is hard when, because 
what do we tell people to do? We're saying, okay, you should unwind like the hour or two before bed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like to just say, doesn't matter what you do, just relaxing and enjoyable. That's right. the only goal, relaxing and enjoyable activities. Apart from that, it really doesn't matter what you do. Um, but then people will tell me, well, um, if I, I read a book, I really don't like reading anymore. Like reading is boring, but it makes me sleepy. Mm-hmm. You know, so you have to try and explain, well, if, if, if you don't enjoy reading, then choose something else. You know, it's not the process of reading that's generating, you know, and it can lead down this slippery slope, right? Because then one day they might read in their buffer zone, feel sleepy, go to bed and not sleep. And then you Mm -hmm. have this worry that this isn't working anymore when it was never really working in the first place, you know? So, (laughs) um, yeah, I'm a big believer in the buffer zone and I just try and say, just stick to relaxing and enjoyable activities. Um, and make that your focus, you know, because as soon as you're striving for sleep, as soon as anything kind of hints at a sleep effort, right. then you're not really following a constructive uh, yeah. constructive path or process. Um, one, of, one of the tricky parts I found with that is that, and this is maybe a bigger kind of cultural question, but I, I feel like a lot of my clients, they, they kind of have two gears mentally. There's like work mode, like high intensity kind of work mode. And then there's like veg out, do mm-hmm. nothing mode. And obviously if you're, if you're in high intensity work mode, your mind is too revved up, you know, you're, that you're in too high a state of arousal. Right. But if you're, if you're doing something that's utterly boring and just uninteresting, you're also, you're way more likely to end up worrying. You don't have, you don't have as much to kind of hold your attention. Yeah. So what I actually tell people when they're, when they're looking for activities that would be good for their buffer zone. And I think this goes along with your point about enjoyable. You actually, most people err on the side of things that are too boring. And Absolutely. Too yeah. You actually want to pick something that's relatively interesting and enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And probably more than you think. You don't want to be watching, you know, a Transformers movie or something. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but something, it should be something that you, when you think about that thing, you're like, oh yeah, that would be fun. Yeah. I want to do that. Yeah. So it could be a book, it could be a TV show, like whatever. Um, but I think that's, a, I just think that's a common point that's kind of missed is that people end up picking things that are, too mellow in a way. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was working with a client and they were, she just mentioned in passing, she was just like, what I really miss is before bed, I used to paint and I used to do coloring. I used to do artwork. And so I said, well, why aren't you doing that now? (laughs) And her fear was that it would be too stimulating. It would wake her up and make it harder to sleep. So not only was she doing just going through this evening routine that she thought was going to help her relax and sleep, but she was removing these enjoyable activities from her life, which was giving the insomnia even more of a negative outcome. Right. So I think that is a really important point. You know, it's not about something that's going to switch off your brain. It's more just something that you're going to find relaxing, find enjoyable, um, maybe even just distract you from thinking about sleep. Yeah. 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 Excellent. All right. So, all right. This is the last thing I'm going to talk about on the, on the anxiety topic. Do you tend yeah. to find that there's like a common thought amongst people with insomnia, like a specific thought that is behind much of the anxiety? You know, for so for example, do you find that people worry that they've lost their ability to sleep, or is it more about if I can't sleep tonight, I'm going to have a terrible day tomorrow? Mm-hmm. You know, what do you find is the the big kind of thought that is behind so much of the, the arousal, the anxiety. Yeah. I would say in people with kind of mild to moderate insomnia, it's, it's usually the tomorrow's going to be awful because I'm not going to sleep. 
Mm-hmm. It's, interestingly, it's not actually that tonight is going to be miserable, although it, it might be not fun. It's the more concerning thing to people is how I'm going to feel tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, so with people like that, I, I actually do a lot of, I really try and work on when you have a poor night of sleep, really getting people to keep track of how do you actually feel after a really poor night of sleep and to mm-hmm. really, to look at that. Um, but in people who have really severe insomnia, almost always the, the biggest fear in my experience is that the big one's going to come back. They, they, ha- they Usually in their history, there was some period where they really were not sleeping well, like really not well for an extended period of time. And it was pretty miserable and even scary. Like mm. they, they thought, you know, there was something really wrong with them and they were, you know, they were damaging their brain or, you know, whatever. Mm. Um, and a lot of people have almost kind of like a trauma level of anxiety about the big one coming back. Like, yeah, I've been doing well for six months, but what if I go back to, you know, to that, that big one? Um, yeah. So those are the two that I, that I think that I see the most commonly. Yeah. Um, on that, on that one, you know, this fear that it's going to come back. Mm-hmm. Um, so I see that too. Um, so I really, I really identify with that. I ha- you have people that they could be sleeping well for like six months and then they have one bad night often to be expected. It's like they had a stressful day at work or an argument with their spouse just before bed or something like that. So then they had a bad night, but immediately that triggers this fear. You know, it all just comes back. Oh, I had this bad night. What if that this means it's coming back? So how do you deal with that? Do you just prepare people in advance? You say, look, you're sleeping pretty well now. If you have a bad night in the future, that's to be expected. Um, or do you just kind of deal with it as and when it happens? Yeah, this is a good, um, it's a super good question. Um, I don't have a great snappy answer to that question. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like you can, you can do a lot of traditional cognitive therapy stuff and, you know, you can look at the evidence and you, you can do, you can go back to your kind of psychoeducation about how sleep works. And, you know, the, if you get a really bad night's sleep, you're actually more likely to sleep well the following night mm-hmm. because your sleep drive is way higher and you can do all that kind of stuff. But I have found for, for people who have that borderline traumatic level of insomnia somewhere in their past, um, not that they, which by the way, it doesn't mean that they objectively only slept, you know, two hours per night or something for multiple nights, but it's that in, in their estimation, subjectively, that was a major turning point in their life, mm-hmm. like something really, really terrifying and scary. I think it just takes time. Like they just have to build up confidence that their body knows how to sleep and that they, if they don't get in their own way by doing these um, understandable but counterintuitive things that end up making insomnia worse, that they will be okay. That that, and I, in my experience so far, and I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, but that just takes time for those people who have that really entrenched, um, almost traumatic level fear. Yeah, absolutely. It does take time, you know, and I like to say just as it took time for the insomnia to develop and to become entrenched, it takes time to make it less of a focus of your life and for you to regain that sleep confidence. Um, when When I sort of get to the end of working with clients, I like to kind of explain to them that it's normal to experience bad nights in the future. Everyone has bad nights. Um, And the key is to, what I like to say is, first of all, just spend like very short amount of time, you know, like 30 seconds. Was there an external identifiable cause for that Mm. sleep disruption? You know, so if I had an argument, stressful work, had bad news, okay, 
That's why I had a bad night of sleep. My insomnia hasn't returned. This is completely normal and to be expected. Um, But sometimes there isn't an identifiable cause and you don't want to spend time dwelling on it, you know? Um, And so then the next step is just avoid those compensatory behaviors, you know? Mm. don't try and sleep it. Don't sleep in the next day. Right. Uh, don't try going to bed earlier. Don't cancel plans with friends. Um, and then I tend to, I tend to tell people that if you do that, normally you'll find your sleep does get back on track by itself. Um, if it doesn't, the beauty of the CBTI techniques, which is why I'm such a big proponent of them is they're with you forever. You know, they're yeah. just in your back pocket. So you just pull them out again and you know, they've worked for you in the past. You know, you've got your sleep back on track and slept well by implementing them. So you can just go back and bring them back into your life again um, for however long it takes, you know, especially if you've kept a log of what techniques you found most effective Mm. you can kind of prioritize them and then just implement them and see if your sleep can get back on track. And very few of them need more like regular intensive ongoing, ongoing coaching after that point. Yeah, I love it. I think that's right on. All right, let's fi- final thing. I just want to talk about sleep hygiene. Okay, yeah, so, one of my uh, favorite topics. <laughs> everyone with insomnia has heard about sleep hygiene. Um, I don't think I'd be amazed if someone is listening to this and they've never heard about it. Um, but just in case they haven't, what do you what do you consider sleep hygiene to be? To me, sleep <laughs> sleep hygiene is what Google turns up when you sleep. How do I when you question how do I sleep better? <laughs> yeah, it's it's common kind of wisdom about things you should do in order to sleep better. So it's, you know, don't, um, I don't, know, don't check your email in bed right before you're sleeping or try and minimize the amount of noise in your bedroom, you know, or, or don't have your room be too hot, you know, sleep in a cool room. So it's all these kind of like common, most frankly, mostly not bad pieces of advice about what goes into, um, what goes into good sleep. Mm-hmm. The, the problem with <laughs> is that while, while most pieces of sleep hygiene are, are not bad pieces of advice and like, yeah, all are things being equal, like a slightly cooler room is probably going to increase your odds of, of mm-hmm. sleeping well. The, they're almost, they're a distraction from the two really big things that do impact sleep, which are arousal and sleep drive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think sleep hygiene as a broad category is not a bad thing, but it, it misses the two really big factors that do Mm. impact sleep. And it makes people think that, well, if I just drink the right kind of sleepy time tea, then I'll get good sleep. Right. Mm. Or if I just figure out what the right temperature is, then I'll sleep. But those, those things are tiny in comparison. Yeah. I, I like to think of sleep hygiene as more preventive in nature, you know, so if you're sleeping well, then sleep hygiene techniques or rules or guidelines are good Mm -hmm. to good to observe um but once you're at the stage where you're living with chronic insomnia it's kind of too late for that um and uh, michael schwartz who i've had on the podcast before he kind of he says it's like dental hygiene you know we we brush our teeth so that we don't get cavities but once you've got that cavity i.e once you've got the insomnia no amount of (laughs) is going to get rid of that cavity you know that's when you need something else and in this case uh it's probably cbti sure Uh, do you think that sleep hygiene should be included in uh in a course of cbti or do you think it just has no place at all um i i don't you know i don't i don't know i 
Yeah, sure. I think it's fine, but it, it has to be contextualized. It, it has to, it, that the idea that it's more preventative, like you're saying, that it's more preventative. Um, it's not really going to help you if you're in the throes of insomnia. Um, the idea that any of those things, even if you're doing them really well, those are tiny in comparison to how high is your sleep drive and how high is your arousal. Yeah. I mean, those are just, they, they, I usually draw a little um, pie chart for people mm-hmm. and say like, okay, here are the things that affect your ability, your chances of falling asleep. And there's like, you know, one's like mm, 45% and that's sleep drive. There's another one that's like 45 to 50% and that's um, arousal. Mm-hmm. And then there's a bunch of tiny little slivers, right? And that's like sleep hygiene. Yeah. So they're, they're not that important. The other really important thing about sleep hygiene, I think that a lot of people miss is that like with any kind of intervention, you, you can't judge its merits based on its benefits alone. You also have to consider side effects. Mm. Um, and this is something that's really not talked enough about with sleep hygiene, which is any, you know, yes, maybe that your room being slightly cooler is good for your sleep, but is you constantly thinking about and worrying about in the temperature in your room? How good is that? Mm. Chances are the amount of anxiety and arousal that comes from you constantly thinking about and tinkering with your sleep hygiene regimen is going to way offset any potential benefit you could get from drinking the right tea or having the right temperature in your room. Or So I think yeah. that's a really big problem that people miss with, with, uh, with sleep hygiene, which is why it, it makes me wonder whether we wouldn't just be better off if no one ever talked about sleep hygiene again. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I think connecting to what you just said, I think one, another problem with sleep hygiene is that for people with chronic insomnia, because that's what they're always taught, well, generally, that's the first thing they find out about, and so they right. implement it, and it doesn't work, which is to be expected. Um, but then it just leads to this worry. Well, everyone told me to do sleep hygiene right. and this would get rid of my insomnia, but it hasn't. And it just leads you to become even more worried about your insomnia. Yes. Like I'm beyond help because sleep hygiene didn't work. Right. Um, and another problem I have with it is that sometimes people can confuse sleep hygiene with more effective techniques like CBDI. Mm. You know, sure. so you hear, oh, I've tried that before. Or like when we're talking about CBTI, oh, I've tried CBTI before. And you say, okay, well, tell me about it. <laughs> Find out it was like all the sleep hygiene stuff. Um, right. And so people then dismiss the more effective, the more evidence-based options that are out there because they feel they've tried them because they confuse like sleep hygiene with, with, with these, with these other techniques. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, so I think you, you told me in an, in an email that you had a client that was really doubling down on the sleep hygiene. Um, and it was really being counterproductive for them. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about that briefly? Yeah. I, I had this guy come in and it was, it was early ish on in my, in my history kind of treating insomnia and I remember the first thing that was kind of stunning was this guy came in and he, he probably knew four times as much about sleep hygiene as I did. And I, I was, I was a, I'm a clinical psychologist. <laughs> the guy knew everything. He had read every article on sleep hygiene, had researched every little tip and tidbit and had spent, frankly, years trying out every possible permutation and combination of different sleep hygiene strategies and approaches. And and the guy just had terrible, terrible insomnia. Um, and so I thought this was a great example of how the, the cost of sleep hygiene can easily outweigh the benefits. And it, it turned out for this guy, the main driver of his insomnia was his 
sleep effort around sleep hygiene. He was constantly researching and tinkering with all these very, in a lot of ways, his life had become about sleep mm-hmm. and about how to optimize the, the perfect sleep hygiene routine. Mm. And what he was missing was all this energy and decision-making and effort and, and just striving towards sleep hygiene was the very thing that was keeping him aroused and making it hard to go to sleep. Because as soon as he would lay down and wasn't feeling sleepy, he'd start thinking, well, hmm, I wonder if I, you know, maybe I shouldn't have taken this supplement and maybe I, you know, maybe I shouldn't have had those potatoes before bed and maybe I, and just everything kept coming back to sleep hygiene. Um, And so once I kind of got a taste for what was going on through this guy's mind, um, we, we, I, I got him to buy into this program, which was set it and forget it is one of the things I say about, about sleep hygiene. Pick, pick some routine, you know, set your thermostat for 69 degrees, drink sleepy time tea an hour before bed, whatever. Do your routine, but leave it alone. Stop mm. thinking about it and tinkering with it. Um, and th- that in itself was really helpful initially for this guy. And then, but the, the juicy piece of irony that I loved with this is may- maybe the, the biggest piece of sleep hygiene that you always hear about is no TV around bedtime, right? Mm. Don't watch TV half an hour before bed or no, absolutely no TV in bed. That's like the cardinal sin mm-hmm. of sleep hygiene, right? Um, but this guy was, he was constantly, he was getting into bed too early. So he was always um, aroused and kind of thinking a lot in bed. And he, and he was always worried about his sleep hygiene. And so I did something really blasphemous from his perspective, which is I recommended that he watch TV in bed. <laughs> How did you react to that when you, when you yeah, first, like, I, I wish I had a photo of this guy's face. <laughs> it was just like, what, you know, like yeah. literally he thought my shrink has gone crazy. Like this guy doesn't know what he's <laughs> talking about. Um, but I had him do it for, for a little while. And sure enough, him, he would just, he'd put on old reruns of the Simpsons. That was like his thing. And he, pretty soon he just started falling asleep with the Simpsons in bed. And so this combination of him taking a set it and a forget it approach to his sleep hygiene, and then just watching the Simpsons and not worrying, which, which kind of removed that association with worry and thinking in mm-hmm. bed. Eventually he was able to stop watching TV and just fall right back asleep. But mm-hmm. I, I love that kind of juicy irony of making the, the sleep hygiene expert watch TV in bed as a way to get over his insomnia. And so, yeah, I, 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 <laughs> one I of my trophies that I hang up on the wall in terms of pieces. Well, I think <laughs> that's great. I, I can just imagine the face of like, you know, when people just become so entrenched in this belief um, of anything, you know, and then you go and suggest the exact opposite, just, but right. you know, the, the great thing is he was willing to try it, you know, just to experiment with it exactly. and, and it worked out. And I think that's, that's so much of the key to success. Like if you, a concern that something's not going to work or if you're skeptical about something is to just do an experiment, you know, mm-hmm. you don't know for sure unless you try Right. And great point. It, it, you might be right, but at least that way you'll be proved right. If you try it, if you do that experiment. And what, one, just a quick little tidbit, cause I'm sure you do this too, just based on interacting with you. One of the best ways to get people to become a little bit more flexible and be willing to experiment is humor. Mm. And I, I really try with most of my clients, um, to be kind of funny and to be, try and be lighthearted and to be, to be kind of jokey in a lot of ways. Cause I, I think that helps foster an attitude that's a little bit more lighthearted and a little bit less doom and gloom. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which is always a good thing with insomnia, I think. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I like to... I like to use the example of checking the clock during the night. You know, I just say, just try not to check the clock during the night because I find that so much anxiety leads back to, I checked the clock and it was X o'clock, you know? Um, So I'm like, well, how about you just stop checking the clock? You know, just before you go to bed, that's the last time you check the clock. Or when your buffer zone starts, that's the last time you check your clock. And then you don't check it again until your alarm goes off. Oh, oh, I don't know. Just the thought of that gives me more anxiety. So then I just say, well, when was the last time you checked the clock during the night and you saw the time and you started to cheer and do cartwheels and you were so excited <laughs> at three in the morning, you know? Chances are you've never looked at the clock during the night if you have insomnia and felt good about the time. Right. So therefore, why not just give it a try where you just give yourself a week or two just as an experiment. Don't check the clock and just see how it goes. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. All right, so I've taken a lot of your time, Nick, and I really appreciate it. So I just want to ask you one final question before sure. I let you get away from me, okay? Um, and this is a question that I try and ask all the experts that I have on here. Um, if someone with chronic insomnia is listening and feels as though they've tried everything, they're beyond help, they can't do anything to improve their sleep, what would you tell them? Mm, that's a good question. Um, they've tried everything. I, I would say then find a good cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia provider. Because mm-hmm. one, one of the things, a, a really good, um, Because someone who's really motivated and who can do the research and learn about sleep restriction and stimulus control and people who are bright and motivated can, they can implement a lot of this stuff. And if they're still having trouble, what, what that probably means are there some really subtle obstacles that are getting in the way that you're missing. But one of the benefits of someone who's really trained and who has a lot of experience is we, we catalog all these little um, obstacles and points of resistance. Like we, we see so many people that we've got this running list of really subtle but powerful obstacles to getting good sleep. And so if you can find a good cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia provider, oftentimes they'll be able to help you identify the, the thing that's, that's the glitch, the thing that you've tried everything and it's still not working for some reason. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, maybe that's uh, that's not a very sexy answer, I guess. <laughs> um, uh, I think it is a good answer because I think that we get we get good at kind of reading behind the lines you know when we're talking to clients uh, they're just kind of reporting things how they feel how they behave but we can because we've heard these stories so many times we can kind of pick things apart almost like the example i gave you of the person that gave up these enjoyable activities before she never would have thought that that was having a negative impact on her process of improving her sleep But, but she just kind of mentioned it in passing almost but because she was talking out loud with me we could, we could identify that as something to work on. Right. Um, um, and also another thing is just having that person looking over your shoulder to make sure that you are consistently implementing these techniques. Yeah. You know, I think you have to be so self-disciplined when you're working by yourself, you know, on sleep restriction, getting out of bed by the same time every day, you know, getting out of bed when you can't sleep. I think it's hard to do unless you're really, really self-motivated. Yeah. And so it can just help to have that person that, kind of keeps you honest, you know, gives you that accountability just to check in with you and just um, yep. help reassure you and just keep you on the right track. So, and, and to find someone, find someone you like, mm. I think that's really big. That's not to be under it. Yeah. Find someone who's an expert who knows what they're doing with CBTI and who has experience. Um, but find someone you actually enjoy working with. I think mm. that's, that's key. Cause you're, you're going to get much more out of it and you're going to be more 
I think you're just going to be more motivated um, to do that, some of those difficult things. So don't be afraid to um, go on some test drives and <laughs> and try and find someone who you really click with. Um, yeah. In addition, sorry, sorry, just one last little point there. Oh, that's great. Um, that's that's great. Thank you so much for for being on, Nick. I think uh, we covered a lot. Um, I really appreciate your time, and I think everyone listening to this is gonna gonna find it really helpful. So thanks again. You bet. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to the Insomnia Coach podcast. If you're ready to implement cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia CBTI techniques to improve your sleep, but think you might need some additional support and guidance, I would love to help. There are two ways we can work together. First, you can get my online coaching course. This is the most popular option. My course combines sleep education with unlimited support and guidance and is guaranteed to improve your sleep. I will teach you and help you implement new CBTI techniques over a period of eight weeks. This gives you time to build sleep confidence and notice results without feeling overwhelmed. You can get the course and start right now at insomniacoach.com forward slash online. I also offer a phone coaching package where we start with a one hour call. This can be voice only or video, your choice. And we come up with an initial two week plan that will have you implementing CBTI techniques that will lead to long term improvements in your sleep. You get unlimited email based support and guidance for two weeks after the call, along with a half hour follow up call at the end of the two weeks. You can book the phone coaching package at insomniacoach.com forward slash phone. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Insomnia Coach podcast. I'm Martin Reed, and as always, I'd like to leave you with this important reminder. You can sleep. <laughs>